listening to the British GT Fan Show. Remember, it's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, redistributed, reproduced or used in any form without permission. For more information or to get in touch, please visit our website www.bgtfshow.co.uk. Thanks for listening. This, this, this is Motorsport Radio. Hello and welcome to the British GT Fan Show on Motorsport Radio for all the latest on the 2020 Intelligent Money British GT Championship and more. Coming up on this bumper episode of the British GT Fan Show, we've got all the latest news, part one of our 2018 British GT full season review and our interview with Bath Motorsports GT4 driver Michael O'Brien. British GT Fan Show is hosted by Sarah Smith, alongside resident GT geek Nicholas Smith and Andrew Brightman and Gaz Jacobs of the British GT Fans. So the first item on the news for this episode is that the 2020 Intelligent Money British GT Championship has announced a revised calendar for the 2020 season. The team at the SRO have put together a nine race calendar, which retains a full 15 hours of racing originally planned before the onset of coronavirus and is, of course, currently still provisional, but it is looking more hopeful for everyone. This then means that first stop will be Alton Park, August 1st to 2nd, and then on to Donington. Uh, Both of these are going to have two races at the weekend before we move on to Brands Hatch for a two-hour endurance race at the Bank Holiday Weekend. We then move on to Donington Park uh, for a three-hour race. Round seven and eight will be Snatterton at the start of October, finishing off at Silverstone for a three-hour endurance race. So what are our thoughts on the new calendar? It's nice to actually have the calendar out now. We can start provisionally planning towards what's going to happen. I'm sure everybody is missing uh, the fact that that Spa's not on it um, for, for this year. I'm definitely looking particularly smart here because I did say last episode that if the 24 goes ahead, then we'll definitely go ahead. And we're not. Um, They've kept the same amount of racing um, and they've kept the same number of races. It's just the way they formatted it is is slightly different. I think it looks pretty good for a, a calendar put together in response to something like this. I just hope they, they they sort of use this as a chance to to make longer term changes. For example, we now have at Donington Park, we now have three races at Donington Park, but we have three races each of a different length. My biggest gripe about the the original calendar was the fact that once again we're doing two identical races at Donington Park. We're not doing that anymore. I'm quite happy about that. It'll be interesting to see how they're going to run the first Donington round with the one one-hour race and the, the two-hour race. Do they run them on separate days? Do they run them on, on both on the Sunday? Be nice to know how they're going to do that, but we'll sure we'll find out in time. When they launched the new uh, revised calendar, the news article they put out launching it did say that they're going to do a one-hour race at the start of the day and then a two-hour race to end the day's racing activity. So my guess is that they won't do a warm-up. It'll be into the circuit as soon as track action's allowed, grid up, and away we go. I think me and Gaz are looking forward to the November race at Silverstone. It'll be nice chilly on post. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'll, that'll, be a, that'll be a cold one. And the, the three-hour the three one 
at Donington Park is intriguing as to when they're going to start that. We're going to use Donington's uh, nice long curfew to do a nice run into the evening on that one. That would, that would be a that'd be an interesting one. The one hour, two hour race at Donington as well, the early in the calendar. I would like to see the one hour race maybe run on the Saturday afternoon. I think that would be that would, that would kind of do a nice little stretch over the over the weekend and give the teams some time to to do, make some repairs slash tuning for the not for the two hour enduro and on the uh, on the Sunday afternoon. Thing that also came out with this is that all the support races will still be there. So I mean Saturday. It's a busy enough take a British GT as it is. They've got three hours of track activity on the Saturday. Um, in fact, slightly more than that, haven't they, with the um, first practice? The uh, practice sessions are an hour each. Right, so it's three hours of, acti- three hours of activity because qualifying is um, 40 minutes spread over an hour, isn't it? So I think, bear in mind, they've got to squeeze in an extra hour of racing for British GT. And they've still got to get all the support races out. And the same considerations are for the support races as well. You need to give them time if if a F3 driver has a mare of a first race for repairing time for the second. So I, th- I think they're going to they're gonna have to stick to first race and last race on the Sunday. I think this is the reason why they've chosen Donut and Park to make these, these changes, though, because of the long curfew. Yeah, you can run till, what, 7 o'clock at night? Technically, technically it's eight o'clock there you go so you could you know you could extend the day people complain about the the, the curfew hours of Donington anyway but you could extend the day further into the evening to get that actually do you get those extra couple of hours racing on the Saturday on, on the Saturday as I as I would like to see it yeah on the extra hour on the three hour race as well on the on the on the September day of course the Donington Park curfew doesn't make any sense to me at all why have a noise curfew for a racetrack right next to a bloody airport? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's he's down to you know neighbours that have moved in since the track was built onto it again. The other issue we're going to have is that the first week, the first autumn park race is all going to, also going to be possibly also the first round of British touring cars and possibly the second British Grand Prix. So marshal wise, we're going to be very stretched out. See, I mean, I'm I'm not a man with an orange orange onesie in the cupboard mine's red um but i'd have thought after eight months of well more than that nine months of no racing at all that all of our marshalling friends would be eager to get out there 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 are quite a lot of you out there We, we we've managed to in the past fully marshal touring cars at brands world endurance at silverstone and british gt at alton park now, I understand there'll be reservations about going out and this, that and the other, but if we, if, if we can do it in the past, there's, there's a good chance we'll be able to do it again. Grand Prix is another level of marshals. It has uh, um, about five 600 marshals there. I'm sure they might condense that this year because of the, the um, situation. Also, then, a lot of marshals are of the age where they probably don't want to go out or might still be self-isolating. So we're going to lose a lot of um, of the higher ups, of post chiefs, and some of the flag marshals. Um, with that situation going on as well, so it's going to be tight. I think it will still, still get by, by, but it's going to definitely going to be not a swarm of orange as we used to see, especially at touring cars. How how busy are you guys on a on a race weekend in terms of 
I, I see there are some posts that have five or six guys on them. Are they are they constantly busy or or is it sort of one person's there on the radio, one person's there with the flag ready and the other guys are drinking tea until a car arrives? Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> um, generally, ideally, you'd have two people on the flags, one person on the radio with at least two to three guys, you know, waiting for those, waiting for that car to come in. Yeah, and waiting for something to, waiting for something to do. Yeah, that's the most ideal bit. I, but um, push comes to shove, you have a couple of people waiting for the car to come in, then you have one person on the flags and the radio at the same time. So you could cut it down to, to, to three people on a post and still run safely? On a small post, yes. Right, yeah, but on like if you have if you have like a corner, say Old Hairpin, Donington Park, Clearways, Brands Hatch, um, Nickerbrook and Cascades at Alton Park, you know, a lot of the major corners at Silverstone, you'd still want, you know, four, five, six guys at least to cover that distance, especially at Silverstone, that is a long run from one corner of cops to the other, or one of the cops to the other. Yeah, I mean, the other thing that needs to be considered here is, is, is of course, social distancing on post. Yeah. Um, I know from walking around with, um, with with cameras hanging from my neck, there's not a lot of space between fence and wall, or fence no, and arco, no. uh, which means you're going to have to space two metres wide. It's not just that, it's if something big happens and the driver's stuck in the car and you have to remember the rescue crew in there, you have to have marshals stabilising the car, whatever you need to do, people need to work in close confines. You can't have, you can't have people breathing in each other's, I mean, you're, in, you're in the, you know, you're in the wide expanse of, outdoor, of the outdoors, but you could still, you still shouldn't have people breathing, well, with this going on, you still shouldn't have people breathing into each other's faces, you know, quite deeply, if you, if you just run a couple of hundred metres to get to a car. There have to be considerations of do the rescue crew just, you know, mask up and 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 glove up to to deal with it, and the marshals hang around just in case anything is absolutely required. Do we have to wear, you know, at least a snood as a face covering and stuff like that? So, are we are we looking at a situation where we have to adopt an Americanized system of the corner of a rescue crew? the corner workers being there to wave the flags and whatever, and when something happens, they just immediately red flag it and send two guys out here, or two sets of guys out in, in pickup trucks. You could, you could do. You could have to end up doing that. Obviously, there'll be an expense in that then, because they have to start forking out money for extra vehicles and stuff as well. But tomorrow, we are getting, as on the 18th of May, we are getting a an announcement from Motorsport UK about um, the, the situation going on with how things will be moving on next with regards to everything. So tomorrow, hopefully, we should find out some more information with what's going on. Well, yeah, before any racing can take place, of course, the guys, they need to do some testing. It's been, what, four months, uh, three, four months since they were last in the cars. Um, and they need to obviously get out there and and they need to prepare for different conditions because we're racing the places when they weren't expecting to race there. It's going to be a lot warmer at Alton Park than it was before. So it's good that some testing is getting back going. Um, at the moment, it's it's limited in, in venues. I think Andrew knows more on on where it on where it's happening, but it's 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 a good sign that things are starting to get back to normal. Yeah, MSV have announced that they're opening up all their circuits for general testing and track days 
obviously following the guidelines of social distancing. And so far, I've seen that Balf and Ram Motorsport are both raring to go. They're in the cars and getting their cars prepared, ready to go. And I believe Opsum might be going as well. So it's a, good, it's a little start already to get us going. So next up in the news is that the British GT Championship's title sponsor, Intelligent Money, is part of uh, a lot of companies' responses to the pandemic have turned around to the British GT community and said that they are offering free investment, ISA and pension, SIP guidance, help and support. Lauren Granville, the championship manager, said we're all really looking forward to seeing Intelligent Money on track with British GT later this year when our new multi-year partnership can begin in earnest. In the meantime, their offer of free support extended to our fans and the wider GT racing community underlines their strength as a partner, commitment to the championship and generosity as a company. Of course, they are a fully regulated provider and they have said they've got a range of impartial services and they are willing to talk to people wherever their investments are currently being handled. For more information about that, you can have a look on British GT's website, which will contain all of the regulatory information that you need to know if this is something that you feel may be of benefit to you. Do we have any comment on this? Do not take anything we say here as a, you must go and do this because that's not what we're saying. I do think it's a nice thing to see that a title sponsor is is actually doing more to add value. A lot of title sponsors, they, they throw money at the problem. Uh, they occasionally throw a few hats and T-shirts. And as nice as a T-shirt with intelligent money on it would be, having somebody in your corner um, in terms of financial advice may be a bit more useful. But it's, it's nice to see somebody becoming more involved. I mean, I can say as someone who has had quite a long background in financial services, it's not a usual offer by any means. But I think that's just a good reflection of, of the times that we've been in. Nothing has been usual over the last few months. And I think it does say a lot that Intelligent Money have made this offer as to their commitment and, and where they see things going in terms of their involvement with British GT. Another piece of news that's come out recently, which doesn't directly affect British GT, but may have some impact on us, is that Audi Sport have officially withdrawn as manufacturer from the Deutsche Tourenwagen Masters, effective from the end of the 2020 season. Their statement does reiterate its commitment to customer racing, but we have noted that four years ago they did release a statement which also reiterated their commitment to DTM. So there's a question there as to whether GT3 and 4 could be next in terms of their reassessment. It does, however, mean that the availability of their drivers for customer racing programmes could mean additional drivers become available to be used within British GT going forwards. Volkswagen's AG have also restated their commitment and aspirations remain in terms of both customer and zero emissions racing. So looking ahead, another question that may be worth consideration for us is whether that could mean an end to the R8 GT3 car. What are our thoughts on this? I think that as long as they're selling cars, they will carry on making them. The R8 has been extremely successful in blank pan uh, slash world challenge racing over the last few years. And, and, the, and the GT4 car is also becoming a very successful car as well. I think as long as they are still selling cars and as long as the regulations stay within their parameters, I suppose, they will carry on making cars and they will keep on selling them. I mean, 
the thing that I noticed earlier, I was looking back through the archives of, of one of the websites that I that I write for, the Checkered Flag. They also reiterated their commitment to the DTM two years ago, pretty much to the day. And I understand this is in reaction to COVID-19 and the last month, uh, according to SMMT figures, car registrations in the UK were 97% down year on year. It doesn't take too long at those sort of numbers before things like motorsport activity start to become untenable. I do worry, though, because it has been Volkswagen and Audi's stated aim to go as zero emissions on their motorsport, and GT3 and GT4 aren't aligned with zero emissions at the moment. They are still burning the old um, uh, liquefied dinosaur. The financial pressures, I think, when it comes down to DTM, I think also came from the fact that there used to be three manufacturers themselves, BMW, Mercedes, and then when Mercedes dropped out, Aston Martin. Then if the series wants to carry on making that mon- that making exactly the same money, the amount of money that Audi has to put into the series had to go up to 50%, maybe. Yeah, and that's probably one of the reasons why they've dropped out. With a, with a third manufacturer not coming in and taking up that extra third, um, although Aston Martin never put in any money, I think it was a private thing with our motorsport. Um, I just I, as 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 the class one on the German side of the class one regulations, I don't I think it's a bit of a flop. In my opinion, it's done very well domestically, but selling them across to Japan, I don't think it's worked. Yeah, and vice versa actually. It was always going to be that Audi or BMW were going to pull out at some point. It doesn't matter if they committed four years ago, two years ago, could have been last year, could have been last month. Eventually, I think it had to give in. I think something had to give. The other key thing in this, and it was sort of one of the first things that Sarah said when she when she came to this news item, is the availability of top drivers for, for customer racing programs. There are nine A5 DTMs, mm-hmm. each with a top-class driver in it. If this spells, as I think it probably could, the death knell for, for, for the DTM, there's another eight BMW drivers that are coming into the market. And BMW are going to have a bit more change in the bank. So potentially there could be support for customer racing teams to go out and race the M6 GT3. And then we might see some of the BMW DTM drivers appearing potentially in into other classes. Now, there are two M6 GT3s currently sat in a workshop of a British GT team. And I'm pretty certain that if BMW made some money available in a driver, they could find somebody to sit in the M seat of those cars quite readily. BMW currently also developing the new GT3 car, which will be based on the M4. So when that becomes available, there'll be plenty of drivers to drive them in any national or international series that those cars be based in. And finally, over the next few months, as the racing world begins to get back on its feet, it does look like fixture congestion is going to be a theme that keeps recurring. And we are starting to see some casualties of this already. Uh, When it comes to Le Mans, Porsche Corps have removed two of their four GTE Pro cars and Corvette Racing have withdrawn as a team because of this as well. Um, I understand from the conversations we were having earlier, there are other races around which um, make timescales really tight. What are we thinking about this and kind of implications uh, in the wider motorsport world? Yeah, obviously Core Autosport for Porsche, they've taken out their two American Porsches, which brings the Porsche entry in pro down to just two cars, the the factory-run cars 
are still on the list. The ones that have disappeared completely are the two new C8 Corvettes. It's a crying shame because those cars look and sound and just generally be phenomenal. But they do have mid-Ohio a week later in, in the IMSA series. It just The logistics were impossible. By the time you've finished racing at uh, 3, 4 o'clock on, on the Sunday, packed up the garage, got everything to the airport, it's not flying out until Monday afternoon, then you've got to turn the cars around um, before you go racing in what is actually, I mean, we've, we've got to accept here, Le Mans is nice, but their bread and butter is IMSA, and that's the championship that they really like to win. So it is a bit of a shame, but it's it's just a sign of the times, really. Yeah, the... Um the the, the, American, the Americans uh, not coming across. Like, we're gonna we're gonna miss out on seeing the Corvettes. We have still got the the Porsches racing at, at, at Le Mans for the WEC side of it. It's Aston Martin's uh, entries uh, in, that would concern us in terms of um, how they um, supply our British GT teams with the pro drivers. So far, we have well, what looks to be ten Aston Martin factory drivers or affiliated drivers confirmed at Le Mans at the moment which would leave a couple of our teams short a pro driver so I suppose it would be up to the teams Aston Martin racing themselves maybe to make a decision on what they what, what they want to prioritise uh, whether not that be one customer is paying them more or you know does a Le Mans potential Le Mans win take priority over a, a, British, a potential British GT win the two cars that are of issue here are the 90, which is Sally Yuluk, Charlie Eastwood, and Johnny Adam, TF Sport at Le Mans. The 98 car, which is the Aston Martin Racing Entered car for Paul Dallalana and Darren Turner, joined by Ross Gunn. Now, the first time I go past an open bookies, I'm putting money on that car to win the race, because that is one heck of a driver lineup. But... The other thing to consider here is, I mean, Johnny Adam, he, I don't believe, just from memory, that he raced with that car in the early part of the season. So he's not as integral to that team. He's with Ahmed Al-Harty in British GT. I think it's fair to say even from now, unless they have the opening part of the season from hell, they're going to be in title contention with three rounds to go. So I'd, I'd be guessing that they'd be leaving him in the Oman racing car in British GT because of the, the news headlines that that can generate with him then going on to win fifth championship and fourth championship in five years and etc etc that's that, that, that's quite a good story for them and a mark let's let, let's not forget that's that's having a lot of bad news at the moment in terms of their financials and this that and the other they probably want to put out some good news this year as well Ross Gunn, probably fairly integral to the Dallalana Darren Turner car. So it might be that Andrew Howell's looking for, for somebody else. But there is somebody else in the orbit of Astro, Aston Martin who has raced with Beach Dean before um, and who knows British GT rather well, given that she was a champion before she was allowed to drive on the road. And that's Jamie Chadwick, of course. Yeah, I, I, as, as I say, I completely agree. Um, I, I did miss actually uh, the, the fact that the Aston Martin, well, an Aston Martin uh, team might be fighting for the British GT Championship. Yeah, I, I, it's a, it's a, see how it goes. In terms of um, Miss Chadwick, it would be nice to see her back, definitely. 
So I think it also then depends on what she's prioritising this year. The W Series, or she has commitments to um, Williams Racket Racing in, the, in, in, in F1, doing, what is, I can't remember, is it simulating, simulation driving she's doing for them? But I feel sure that, you know, eventually it will work itself out. TS Sport are going to be stretched, um, I would say, um, having to do both races on the same weekend. As I say, I'm, I'm willing to say it's a wait-and-see game. I, I see maybe not seeing some uh, pro drivers in British GT for that one weekend. You're listening to the British GT Fan Show. You can find us on social media at BGTF Show. Or visit our website www.bgtfshow.co.uk. Also visit our partners. British GT Fans on Facebook. On Instagram and Twitter, it's Fans of British GT. For our feature for this episode, uh, we're taking a look at the 2018 British GT Championship season. First of all, we'll give a brief rundown race by race. So over to Nick to start with Alton Park. So the first round of the championship, it wasn't the world's best weekend in terms of weather. The first race got started a little bit late under the safety car as a result of basically fairly torrential downpour. You'd probably been better off using a speedboat for race one of the championship season. And the drama started on the grid, really, because the number 66, the Team Parker Racing Mercedes, that's Scott Malvin and Nick Jones, couldn't get away from the deep reach of the grid. It was an impressive entry we had. They were down on the run from Lodge down to Deer Leap. They were that far back from the lights in GT4, and it just didn't get going. So the marshals had to jump to it and and get that one running, whilst the rest of the field got away behind the safety car. And Nick Jones lost a lap trying to get that car going, joined the back of the field, but they were obviously on the back foot from the start. Four laps of safety car, so people could get used to where the water was lying on the track, finally came to an end, and Flick Haig, who was sitting on pole, the first overall female pole sitter in British GT history, well, basically shot off. She was she was uh, away from, from Lodge Corner and caught the rest of the field slightly napping. John Minshaw in the number 33 Lamborghini was doing his best to keep up and although well, he was mired down in traffic a bit, he put a dive on, on Mark Farmer in the TF Sport Aston Martin, which resulted in the Aston Martin pointing the wrong way at Old Hall. And then a little bit later, um, he, was, he was putting on some, some pretty good moves on the Bentleys, the number seven was taken at Lodge Corner about three racing laps into the race. And the number one was taken at Old Hall in one run. So it took both of the Team Parker Bentleys in in the space of about 10, 15 seconds. Lamborghinis were getting a bit punchy as well. Leo Matiski in the number two put some nice moves on his teammate Sam Dehan in the 69. And like I say, Minshaw, he was going great guns. Uh, first real incident of the race came about 10 minutes into the race with the number 62, the Academy Motorsport Aston Martin, minding his own business at Lodge Corner when the number 43, one of the BMWs, took a dive up his inside. It was a, a move that was never really going to work out cleanly and a little bump from a BMW turned into quite a significant accident into the tyres on the outside of Lodge. That car limped back to the pit lane, dropping mud all over the circuit and didn't return. So all the way through the first half of the race, it was all about Flick Haig building up her gap. She had it out to six seconds at one point, and then John Minshaw found a bit of get up and go and started bringing the gap down, but he ran out of time. The pit window opened. Flick Haig dived in on the first possible time, 
whilst John Minshaw stayed out for an extra lap, hoping that the clear track would give the Lamborghini the advantage. But Flick and Johnny Adam, they did their, their driver change pretty good, which meant that come the end of the pit stops, it was once again the 75 Optima Master Martin ahead of the 33 Lamborghini. Now, thereafter, there was a, a bit of an incident. Phil Keane was closing on Johnny Adam, and Johnny managed to get past the number 43 BMW at uh, Nickerbrook. It came to Hilltop, and Phil Keane also was trying to get past, misjudged it slightly, and absolutely destroyed one of the rear wheels of the Lamborghini. That put him into the pit lane for a new tyre, and well out of contention. It put Darren Turner in the Beach Dean, number 99, Aston Martin, into second place for an Aston Martin 1-2. But he was 35 seconds down at the time that he took over second place. GT4 was a fairly consistent battle between McLarens, headed by the number 72 car of Track Club, Adam Ballon and Ben Barnicote. Now, Ben Barnicote was a pretty well-known quantity at that point. Adam Ballon was fairly new to racing and Track Club were new to the series, but they put in a very strong effort. They were leading a McLaren BMW, McLaren BMW for much of the second half of the race. So come the end of the race, it was uh, never really in doubt for the number 75 Optimum Motorsport Aston Martin. It was Optimum's first run with a GT3 Aston Martin and they took a win. It was also the first time that a lady racer has taken an overall victory in a British GT race. The number 99 held out for second place uh, in the face of a hard-charging number 116 ERC Sport Mercedes of Lee Mole and particularly Yelma Berman at this point to complete the GT3 podium. In the GT4 class, it was the number 72, the track club McLaren, which took the win on their debut. They finished ahead of one of the McLaren driver development cars, the Tom Motorsport run number four machine of Michael O'Brien and Charlie Fagg, with the number 42 Century Motorsport BMW of Ricky Collard and Jack Mitchell rounding out the podium. To see Flick get that race win was, was excellent. That car was, was going well all weekend, if I remember rightly. You know, building up that gap in the in, in the first half of the race. Credit, all credit to her. But then, of course, handing over to Johnny Adam just extended it even further. She made a good choice in terms of both teams and co-driver, I think, for, for, for the 2018 season. Yeah, I mean, Johnny Adam is never, never a slow driver, is he? Um, and Flick just really impressed. And she was right when she was she was commenting to the to the TV feed commentary team. At the end of the day, what we need to be doing here is we need to stop thinking of the Flick Hagues and the Jamie Chadwicks and the Anna Valeskas as lady racers. They're racers. It doesn't matter how you're plumbed, you can be just as quick and she proved it. Oh definitely, yeah. I mean there's definitely no doubt she was at least one of the best G C three drivers out there for the first half of that race. The second race at Autumn Park was due to be a one-hour encounter. It didn't turn out that way. It didn't turn out particularly well at all, particularly for the car which won the first race, the number 75. Johnny Adam was on his way to the grid in conditions which, well, if you needed a speedboat for race one, you needed a, a submarine for race two. He was heading round to the grid, round the back of the circuit, came across a GT4 car, tried to pass the GT4 car, lost control of the Aston Martin, hit the barrier, did uh, quite significant damage to the rear quarter wheel and suspension area of the Aston Martin. So limped it back to the pits, didn't make it out to the grid, finally got the car prepared shortly after the race had been red flagged. 
So they they started the race again on the safety car, did two laps behind the safety car, then red flagged it because the conditions weren't getting any better, um, kept the cars on the grid for about 20, 25 minutes, trying to get a race away. The decision was made by Peter Daly, who, of course, is the man responsible for keeping everybody safe, that really they weren't going to be able to get a race away. They won't be able to get any races away for the rest of the day because of the weather. Because they had done laps under safety car under the rules of British GT, which are different to the rules that are standard in the MSA Blue Book, as it was at the time, the race was awarded full points. So it was full points to the Barwell Motorsport number 33 of Minshaw and Keane. And unfortunately, nothing for our race one winners. They didn't get any points at all because they didn't get out. I personally feel on this one that the right thing was done. At the end of the day, people want to go racing, but safety is more important than, than entertainment. I think there was a I think there was a river flowing down the side of the track where I I was. But awarding four points, in my opinion, wasn't the best decision. I know I know they run to basically an SRO rule book rather than the MSA one, but maybe half points might be a bit more favourable for what was it four laps under the safety car. It, it wasn't even that, it was only two. Running under MSA rules or motorsport UK rules as they are now, that's that's no points. If you don't hit the minimum distance, then it ain't a race. It just never happened. No. Um, they have changed the rules now, so that if that shouldn't happen again if it, that sort of situation does arise. Which I, th- I think they needed to. They needed to readdress their rules because whilst it was the rules it was written down and the teams all agreed to race under the rules as they were written. I don't think they quite expected the level of backlash they got from the fans because uh, I don't think any of the fans or many of the media, to be honest, were that impressed by the decision. And it was less the decision to start the race. That was pretty much a no-brainer. I'm surprised they even started it. It was the decision to, to award points after... Yeah, I think the conditions weren't favourable at all for that race. Maybe if they had left it a little bit later... They did cancel the rest of the day, remember, Gaz? So yeah, they did, yeah. Didn't get, didn't get any better. We, we all end up going home early. And, of course, if they were going to award four points, they really should have awarded them to Lorna Vickers, <laughs> who led every lap. <laughs> <laughs> safety car takes all the points. None of the glamour, none of the points. I feel sorry for the safety car team. Motorsport Radio. So, after Alton Park, round three, race meeting number two of the championship, was at Rockingham Motor Speedway and whilst we didn't know at the time it would be the last time that the British GT Championship would grace the UK's only oval only full size oval anyway the number 33 uh, Phil Keane and John Minshaw they took the pole thanks to Phil Keane's rocketed lap in qualifying of course being one of the endurance races it had been John Minshaw that started the car with Flick Haig alongside in the number 75 Optimum car now, at the start, uh, she was taken in pretty short order by Sam Dehan in the 69, leading to a Barwell Motorsport 1-2 at the start of the race. It was a race that was affected on many occasions by safety cars. The first one being due to the 101, which was Sean Balfe's McLaren 650S GT3 of Balfe Motorsport. He hit a wall after coming together with one of the GT4 cars, the Jaguars from Invictus Racing, coming out of the Brook Chicane and onto the Speedway. Now, it's pretty blind through there and at pretty high speed. So, of course, they had to neutralise the race to get people out there to, to help out Sean get in the car back. 
Safety cars, of course, are known to breed safety cars, and safety car number two wasn't long in coming. The number 56 Tolman Motorsport McLaren 570S GT4, it was driven by David Patterson, had a bit of a coming together with Team Hard, the number 88 Janetta. The, the 56 was was left in the, in the kitty litter, the number 88 carried on. But again, we need the safety car out to neutralise the circuit so that Andrew, Gaz and their colleagues could get out there and, and get that car back into the race. The pit window was basically disastrous. It was a bit of a nightmare for, for the Barwell team. The number 69 car, that's the Sam DeHaan driven and Johnny Cocker should have been driving car. Well, the clutch went on it, basically. Johnny Cocker didn't get a chance to get into the car. It was without motive power and it therefore retired from the race. John Minshaw, he had a bit of brain fade, really. Um, We've seen it in a number of different series. Uh, We've seen it in British GT before as well. Driver, all excited to go out and do the pit stop and and win. And they're so busy focusing on what they've got to do when the car gets stopped, they don't notice where they're stopping the car. He stopped in the wrong pit box and, to add insult to injury, picked up a 10-second stop-and-go penalty for a pit lane infringement at the same pit stop. Now, the second half of the race, the story was again one of safety cars. The third safety car came out after the number 22, one of the Invictus Jaguars, got stuck and beached in the wet grass on the inside of the Dean Hairpin. The Dean Hairpin is the one off off Outer Speedway 1, which brings you back into the infield. He got pretty, pretty well beached there. And again, big braking zone right next to the incident. You, you don't want cars coming in there at full speed. So they had no choice but to neutralise the race. And then the fourth appearance of the McLaren safety car came when the Team RJN Nissan, the number 24 car, managed to get stuck in the gravel at Tarzan. Quite frankly, I'm surprised we didn't have more for that reason because it seems every time you walk past Tarzan, there's a car coming into the gravel. He he got himself uh, pretty well beached and had to be pushed out. Now, the last sort of highlight of the race before the end, perhaps I should say low light, came when Maxime Martin in the jet stream Aston Martin managed to pick up a penalty for abusing the track limits. So come the end of the race, and it was a first-time win for a new team. All of this action that had been going on, you kind of ignored where the race was actually going itself and, until it was over, and you had to figure out who won. Uh, Yelma Berman took the checker flag first in the number 116 ERC Sport Mercedes-Benz that he shared with Lee Mould. They didn't qualify particularly well, being honest, but they raced their way through the through the pack, and they got a very good reward for their effort, to be honest. So after a poor qualifying, which left them right down at the back of the grid, it was actually Yelma Berman that took the chequered flag at the end of the race in the number 116 ERC Sport Mercedes that he shared with Lee Mole. It was hard work for the pair to fight their way through a, a pretty strong GT3 field, but they really pulled some moves. And if I remember, the Mercedes was absolutely bang on on the brakes into Dean and it it, it it put out some pretty spectacular moves coming off the speedway. Second over the line was the number 17 car, Derek Johnson and Marco Sorensen for TF Sport. They took a 30-second penalty. They had a clash with the defending champions, Rick Parfit Jr. and Ryan Ratcliffe, driving in the number one Team Parker Racing Bentley. So they netted that their penalty, and it put them down the order a fair bit. It did leave some space on the podium for a couple of other cars, though. 
So second place was inherited in in the way of justice, one could say, by the number seven Team Parker Racing car. I know it was the wrong Team Parker Racing Bentley, but at least the team got a podium to celebrate. This one care of Ian Loggy and Callum McLeod, whilst the number 99 Beach Dean AMR of Andrew Howard and Darren Turner rounded out the podium in GT3. GT4, the win was taken by HHC Motorsport. Patrick Matheson and Callum Poynton in the number 55 drove through to victory there, ahead of the number 54 Ultratech Team RJN Nissan 370Z. Stefan Johansson and Jesse Antilla sharing the driving for the Nissan, and it was one of the Nissan's stronger results in its two years in the championship, so it was quite an impressive second place there. Academy Motorsport finally took a bit of a return after their troubling Autumn Park. Wilmore and team boss Matt Nickel Jones were driving the number 62 car and they drove it through to their first podium of the season, third place. Between all the safety cars and everything else, some decent racing going on, especially in GT4. There was a battle for the podium between the Nissan and the um, McLaren of Tolman of Michael O'Brien, and then obviously um, Academy joining in. There was a decide on the last lap who actually got the final spot on the podium. Decent racing throughout the, throughout the whole grid, really. Rockingham always produced good racing, though, didn't it? It was good racing that was sometimes lost because of the size of the place and and this and the other. But it was, it's the long sprint around the the oval, then it's the tight twisty section, which sort of each car has its own. Well, it has its positions where it's where it's stronger. Um, yeah, that's what I'll say. The Mercedes was, as I said, was always strong on the brakes into into Dean, out of speedway one into Dean, the longer wheelbase, given the stability they need to be more confident on the brakes. Whereas the Lamborghinis absolutely love the piff path section and and then down the steel straight and, and through Chapman and that sort of area. They were, they were pretty well poised with the with the balance for the for the quick and turnings. I think Graham Davidson and Maxime Martin in the Jetstream Aston will be kicking themselves a bit because they were actually leading when they got the, their penalty for track limits. Maxi Martin, not, I think it was his first visit to the circuit. Obviously, being a, a European-based driver, he's not used to the UK rules of track limits. And he's just got pinged too many times, which did cause them their, probably lost them their first race win. Yeah, but at the end of the day, and this is something that all racing drivers need to learn, they need to get it in their head. The end of the racetrack is the white line. If you're going over that white line, they say you're taking liberties. No, what you're actually doing there is cheating. British GT Fan Show is a Storm Vixen Creative and RPS-driven media production for motorsport.radio. You can find us on social media at BGTF Show or visit our website www.bgtfshow.co.uk. So after the visit to Rockingham, we then moved on to Snetterton and the first race was another race that had a fair bit of safety car involvement. The number 11 TF Sport Aston Martin didn't have a great start, with Mark Farmer not matching the pace he'd shown during qualifying, causing a queue of no less than five cars before dropping to third place within around 15 minutes of the race, behind both the number 47 Jetstream Aston Martin and the number one Team Parker Racing Bentley. Early in the race, we also saw the Beach Dean number 99 have some trouble with a radiator issue, causing them to drop back as well. 
At around 20 minutes in, we then had a safety car call out following the GT4 Balf Motorsport number 501's car contact with one of the Stella Motorsport Toyotas, leaving the Balf McLaren stopped at Bombhole. The safety car lasted well into the pit window, which after a driver change allowed Nicky Team to come out ahead in the number 11 of the previously leading number 47, where from that point on, he only gained seconds to eventually take up the win. In the meantime, the number one Team Parker Racing Bentley moved out of contention, dropping down to 10th overall as the car suffered with the narrow pit lane, which meant that a podium spot was in sight for the number 33 Barwell Lamborghini Huracan. Over in GT4, the number 42, which had led the race prior to the pit window, also dropped down the ranks following a nightmarish pit stop, which left the number 44 Invictus Games Racing Jaguar in the lead, prior to being overtaken by Joe Osborne in the number 45 Tolman Motorsport McLaren. Both the number 44 Invictus Games Jaguar and the third place number 53 Ultratech Racing were given pit stop penalties for short stops, which then led to Charlie Fagg in the number four Tolman Motorsport gaining second place, giving Tolman a 1-2 crossing GT4. That means GT3-wise, heading up with first place, we've got the TF Sport number 11, Aston Martin, driven by Mark Farmer and Nicky Team. In second, the Jetstream Motorsport, Aston Martin number 47 of Graham Davidson and Maxime Martin. And in third place, the Barwell Motorsport, number 33, with John Minshaw and Phil Keane. GT4, heading up the points, we had the Tolman Motorsport 56, David Patterson and Joe Osborne, followed by the Tolman Motorsport number 4, making it the 1-2 with Michael O'Brien and Charlie Fagg at the helm. And in third place, the Academy Motorsport number 62, Will Moore and Matt Nickel-Jones. The other thing to come out of this race was fourth place. We had Flick Hay and Johnny Adam in the number 75 Optimum Motorsport. However, they did receive a penalty, which then dropped them down to ninth place. But they did successfully appeal this, which then brought them back up. I mean, really, the main thing in this race that, that, that needs discussing is is this, this fairly long safety car we had that, that interfered with the pit window. And nobody likes safety cars in pit windows because it makes for a very, very congested pit lane. Especially at Snefton, where the pit lane isn't the largest. It's it's one of the two smallest pit lanes we visit each year. So perhaps you guys can tell us a little bit about how these incidents are handled uh, in a safe way for you guys, for the drivers, for the, for everybody. But also trying to get us back to racing as quickly as possible. Well, normally you'd uh, you'd hope to have an incident team somewhere near you, but where that McLaren was parked on the inside the corner, there's no incident team anywhere near it. So you have to wait for the recovery truck to be authorised and, and start moving to it. And even then, you need a safety car because if you if you have a car spinning off on the inside of that corner and hitting a safety truck, we've all seen what happens when cars collide with recovery equipment in the last few years. doesn't end very well for the driver, if you know what I mean. So we, we, talk, we try and generally get the race neutralised before getting big heavy machinery out there. Where the Balf car had stopped as well really affected this situation because as uh, Gaz said, it was it was on the circuit and actually it was pretty much on the racing line. So there's no way we would go out as a track with the car in that dangerous position unless the race was neutralised. In this situation, it was best for us to have the race under safety car, which obviously did take up time, but for everybody's safety, it's the best way of doing it. If Graham had come onto the grass and parked by the marshal post, at least against the barrier, we could have probably covered it under yellow 
and wouldn't have to worry about it. That that affects a lot of the situation sometimes is where the car ends up. So once you've got the race controlled and in this situation, what what steps do you then have to take to to clear the car once once you've got all the assets there and you're ready to actually carry out the recovery what what's involved in that it will depend on what actually the situation of the car is um, if the car's available to be moved quite easily it can just be dragged onto the flatbed or pushed out the way if the car's missing a wheel or perhaps as, as i think in this situation the car might have been stuck in gear with a clutch issue after the incident obviously then has to be lifted and moved out the way yeah, you, yeah. You, there's, there's no, there's no, there's no set way of, of handling an incident. You, you run through scenarios during during training sessions, like that, but you know, you'll, you'll 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 always come across an incident which is completely individual. So you know, what I mean, you've got a gear, you got you got a wheel missing, and it's stuck in gear. Now, now it's going to, and it's tight up against the barrier, and uh, you know, what I mean, you struggle to get, you struggle to get a a, a lifting hoist on it, and uh, and you can't drag it out of the way either. So for fear of damaging the car even more. Of course, Sneston is one of the sprint race format meetings. So we have two one-hour races there instead of an endurance event. And that means we have a second race, which started obviously with the pro drivers at the wheel who qualified in the second part of qualifying the day before. Phil Keane was on the front row of the grid, but lost out to Marco Sorensen at the start. The TF Sport number 17 was pretty much on fire during the race. And I, I mean that in terms of speed rather than in terms of getting out the extinguishers. The real drama in the first lap, though, came in GT4, a little bit down the order, and really focused on the number 86, the Stella Motorsport Toyota GT86. Had a bit of an incident around the Wilson hairpin stroke Palmer area. Came out of Palmer, trailing bodywork from the uh, from the right rear. Got down to Agostini, where Ben Barnicote in the number 72 was feeling a little bit feisty. Decided to try and go up the inside, and basically just just got it wrong. It it didn't end up very well. The McLaren parked up at the side of the track with something wrong in the suspension tire wheel area uh, on on the rear of the car. So he was stopped at Agostini and into retirement. The 68 did make it back to the pits, though, where the team were later seen with the lump hammers and the gaffer tape. So proper motorsport engineering going on there. About 20 minutes into the race came the next real piece of interest. And that was again in the GT4 area. Ben Green in the number 42 BMW, the much-loved Ben Mobile, lost control at Corum. He, he got touched by the Equipe Vachure McLaren, uh, uh, driven by Daniel McKay at the time. And of course, Corum long fast corner you're really leaning on the car and anything that causes it to unsettle and there's there's a very good chance you're going to be looking back the way you've come so come to the pit window and the race leader is the number 11 aston martin nikki team handing over to mark farmer they've got success seconds to serve during this pit stop so they lose 10 seconds and get out just ahead of the number 33 uh john minshaw taking over from phil Keane for second and third the number 17 car, Mark Farmer's teammate, Derek Johnson, takes the lead during the stops. So there's a bit of a switch around, and it's a very tight pit lane at Snetterton. So even if you get in first, there's no guarantee you're going to get out first. It's it, The pit lane's an, an exciting addition to any multi-driver race. 35 minutes in, just as the pit window is closing, Ian Loggy starts having problems in the Team Parker Racing Bentley, the number seven. He'd inherited it from Callum McLeod. 
comes to notice just going pretty slowly, and he was going very slowly indeed, because he was still entering the pits three minutes later when Rick Parfit Jr. in the other Bentley from Tim Parker Racing, the number one car, comes into Murray's um, a bit optimistically, uh, shall we say. Takes a bit too much of speed and ends up looking back to Corum rather than down the centre straight. So last three, four minutes of the race and things are getting a bit spicy in GT3. Graham Davidson in the 47, the Jetstream Master Martin, desperately trying to work his way past the Barwell Motorsport Lamborghini of John Minshaw. Finally gets on terms coming through the uh, the first corner and down towards the Wilson hairpin. Takes a bit of a, a bit of a look up the inside and it all goes a bit wrong. John Minshaw gets a good look at Scary Tree. And Graham Davidson goes off into the sunset. It does mean that the results of the race in GT3, TF Sport took their second win of the day with the number 17 car this time, Derek Johnson and Marco Sorensen at the wheel, ahead of the number 99 Beach Dean motorsport car, Andrew Howard and Darren Turner. Number 11, Mark Farmer and Nicky Team held out for third place in GT3. And eagle-eyed listeners will spot there that that means it is an Aston Martin complete podium. In GT4, we've got the number 42, the Benmobile, takes its victory. Ben Tuck and Ben Green. Tom and Motorsport number five car holds out for second place. Lewis Proctor and Jordan Albert taking the silver there. Ahead of the Academy Motorsport number 62. Wilmore and Matt Nickel-Jones proving to be one of the most consistent drivers in the championship almost always scoring third. This was a nicely action-packed race. So there was a couple of tasty overtakes during the race. One comes to mind was the, the fight between the 66 and the 54, the Parker Merck and the Ultratech RJN Nissan, dragging down the pitch straight even. The 66 just kind of squeezes him out, so he has to cross into the blend line of the of the, of the the exit of the pit lane. I, I thought it was actually going to cause a, a penalty, but the stewards did nothing about that one. There was a couple of nice little tasty battles as well, towards the end of the race as well. The uh, 17 and 99 Astons of the Beach Dean and TF Sport, that was a nice little battle. And you also had the 33 Barwell Lambo and the 75 Optimum. They were also going at it. It was a nice little race, this was. Snetterton is a bit of a Marmite circuit. There's not a lot of people that, that sort of sit on the fence with this one. And a lot of people say they prefer it the way that it was compared to the way that it now is. But it does promote boisterous racing because there's lots of fast parts and there's lots of big stops and there's places that a driver that's feeling feisty can stick his nose up the inside and hope. It does however, mean that you guys get rather busy every time British GT race there. I hate to think how busy marshals are when touring cars are racing there. No comment. <laughs> The race was a result of where it was. It's a track that's got all the opportunities to slip yourself up that Silverstone and Spa have got. But it's not got the reputation for drivers tripping themselves up and therefore they don't really think about it that much. Which is a bit of a surprise because Spa can be as tight as some of the, some of the older British tracks as well. It's, yeah. uh, there's not much room on some of the exits of the corners. The benefit of, I mean, one of the things we really do like about Snetterton is that it's, I mean, I don't know what they've done over the winter because they were still doing some work between media day and the start of racing, but they've resisted the urge to tarmac everywhere. They have concreted um, and tarmac the outside of Lodge at Alton Park over, over the current off-season as well and things like that. 
they've made those sort of changes to to a few of the other venues. But they that they seem to be, and I appreciate this wholeheartedly, determined to keep Snetterton as a sort of circuit where if you try and take a liberty with the circuit, the circuit is going to take a liberty with you. Is it the major work at Snetterton on the first corner? They replaced most of the barriers down the back straight, I think is what they did. Yeah, and they've done Old Hall and they've done Lodge. They've they've hard-standing the runoff. Fair enough. Lodge can get a bit hairy. If you come out that corner wrong, you straighten the barriers. So a a little bit of runoff is not a bad thing. Yeah, it means now that they don't have to red zone the bottom of Deer Leap. Yeah. Because that's where you get your classic Lodge shot with the cars cresting the hill at Lodge. Yeah, yeah, very true. Motorsport Radio. Round six of the championship was the Blue Riband event. It was the Silverstone 500 on the home of British Motor Racing, the Grand Prix circuit at Silverstone. And the main bit of news from from the pre-race, really, was a new entry into the Racing Drivers' Book of Excuses, and it's a pretty good one. Uh, Ryan Ratcliffe found himself unable to race. He'd come down with food poisoning. Team Parker Racing obviously need to replace Ryan because you need two drivers for, for a British GT race, especially a three-hour one. Um, so a phone call was put into the driver, which helped Rick Parfit Jr. to the title the year before. Seb Morris was called in, but he was already on his way to Alton Park to do a, a spot of driver coaching. It's not an easy run between Alton Park and Silverstone, M6, M1 all the way, so he couldn't make it in time. And Rick Parfit Jr. took the start without his co-driver, actually having sat in the car let alone turned a lap. And because of the change in drivers, the rules meant that he had to start from the back of the grid. Slightly fired up was the defending champion, and he was carving his way through the field pretty quickly until he came along the number 69, the Barwell Lamborghini of, of Sam Dehan. There was a, a bit of argy-bargy going on on the way down the Wellington Strait and Brooklands, which led to Rick actually getting past the Lamborghini, but overcooking it. And he ended up pointing the wrong way at Luffield. In GT4, the early battle, that was between Tolman Motorsport and Ikeep Fisher, the number five of Lewis Proctor, and Finlay Hutchinson in the number 10. They were going at it, whilst the number 44 Invictus Jaguar had to retire. Matty George was planning on actually doing the entire race in two cars. He was running in the 44, and he was also going to run in the... Generation Super Racing AMR Aston Martin of James Holder, but obviously he didn't he didn't really get that chance. The the Jaguar being retired fairly early on, and to be honest, the sixty eight the Stella Motorsport Toyota GT eighty six didn't have the best of racers either. Early on in the race, he found himself with three wheels on his wagon and ended up retired at the side of the track, having lost a front wheel. Pit window came around, and this was something we weren't expecting to be saying, to be honest. The RJN Nissan, Ricardo Sanchez, had the wheel of the car and a 16-second lead from Graham Davidson, who who picked up a penalty for coming together with Mark Farmer's TF Sport Aston Martin. Further down the order as well, heading up towards the, the pit window, there was quite a battle brewing in GT4. Calvin Fletcher was was having a pretty good race. Didn't uh, really take many prisoners there, including one Charlie Fagg, who was driving the Tom and Motorsport McLaren, the number four car. He put a move on Calvin, which didn't really work out. Tom and car was in the gravel, broken right rear suspension, and that was it. Job done. That car wouldn't race again. An early pit stop for the number 17 TF Sport car. 
uh, obviously put Marco Sorensen in the car early and handed them the lead in GT3. The 24, which had been leading, obviously missed out on the pit stops and then had a problem. Basically, the driver's seat, it, it moved under the drivers and they had to they had to stop a second time. Drew and Moore couldn't quite reach the pedals in the, in, in the Nissan. So he had to come in and get and get it sorted out. It's, there's no point trying when you're struggling to reach the pedals. But it did drop them out of contention. The Team Abba Racing Mercedes had suspension damage. They dropped out as well. And suspension damage was, was really the story of the day. The the GT4 leaders, the Equipe Vachure McLaren, they, they suffered suspension failure from a lead that was sort of 35 seconds strong. So that must have been absolutely gutting. Of course, switching out between the AMs to the pros meant that in TF Sport, the number 11 car, one Nikki team had been installed. And as I've said many times before, if you want your car to go quickly, you install a Nikki team. There had been an earlier spin for the car, but Nikki was, was putting the hammer down pretty successfully. Managed to get out the pit stops ahead of Phil Keane from the second and the second go around the pits and went on to claim the win in GT3. Phil Keane then had his hands full, basically. Johnny Adam, in the number 75 car, was doing his best to get himself further up onto the podium from third place. Phil had to turn attention to defending against, which basically let the Dane get away. In GT4, it was Century Motorsport that was really doing doing the good good work. Uh, the retirement of the number 10 car left the, the BMWs with the advantage, although 42 had success in previous rounds, therefore had success seconds to serve in the pit lane. That 22nd sat in the pit lane longer than pretty much everybody else in a very competitive class, dropped them down out of the order. So come the end, it was the number 43 car of Jack Mitchell and new co-driver Alexander Sherpin, which took the win. Ahead of the number five, Tolman Motorsport McLaren of Lewis Proctor and Jordan Albert, and then the number 62 car, the Academy Motorsport of Wilmore and Matt Nickel-Jones, took third place. Another strong result for Academy that were sort of coming of age with the with the old Aston Martin GT4 car, just as it was starting to be phased out. Morris did a good job jumping in the car after he's not driven it since the last race the year before. Faddy arrived literally five minutes before his stint was due to start. To get in the car and he was immediately on pace for what he was doing, what Rick was doing in the car. He did a good job. Yeah, I think that's a sign of, of how the pro driver imprints on the AM. They worked together for two years in, in the GT3 programme, building Rick up to a title. And in that time, Rick will have adopted a lot more of, of Seb's likes when it comes to a car. So you'll, you'll, you'll probably find that the car was set up more for Seb than it might have been for Ryan, to be honest. So he'll have jumped in the car and it'd have felt it have felt very comfortable. And Seb, it, there's never been a car that he couldn't drive. There's never been a car that he couldn't make sing. It's why he's now a Bentley driver. One of the other stand-up performances was definitely Kelvin in his Nissan. Being an AM driver, he was mixing it in with all the pro drivers for the first half of the race, and he was there in amongst them all. And it's just an unfortunate contact with the Charlie Fag, which sort of took them out of the battle, really. With Kelvin, it was when he started to, to blossom as a racing driver. Obviously, he'd had a year in the old British Taxi Crash Championship. Didn't go particularly well for him. And come round six of the championship, about halfway through the season, he sort of he figured out what this what this GT thing was all about, didn't he? 
You're listening to the British GT Fan Show. You can find us on social media at BGTF Show or visit our website www.bgtfshow.co.uk. Also visit our partners, British GT Fans, on Facebook, on Instagram, and Twitter. It's Fans of British GT. So after the race at Silverstone, we went on our summer holidays to Spa and the whole race saw quite a bit of damage inflicted to a number of cars. With Mark Farmer's number 11 TF Sport Aston Martin being one of the first casualties coming off at Eau Rouge, which caused an oil drop onto the circuit and a car fire. The subsequent fallout also caused radiator issues for Andrew Howard's beach jean Aston Martin, all of which led to a safety car deployment and also a 60-second stop-go penalty for Ram Racing's Ramon Voss, which ultimately dropped him from second to the back of the running. A first-half clash between Balfe Motorsports car number 501, driven by Graham Johnson, and HHC's Motorsport number 55, Callum Poynton, effectively taking both cars out of the race. The Balfe car was forced to retire, and the 60-second stop-go penalty received by the HH car dropped them out of the running as well. As we approached the pit window as cars started to come in we had a fire in the pits second of the day which led to the retirement of Jordan Albert and Lewis Proctor's Tolman Motorsport number five car and fire definitely seemed to be a running theme of this race um, as we moved into the second half Adam Christodoulou's ABBA race in Mercedes also caught fire this time causing another safety car session the safety car deployment in the second half of the race did allow the number 43 Century Motorsport to take the lead and then successfully hold off the number four Tolman McLaren driven by Michael O'Brien and Charlie Fagg in GT4 uh, with some great track placement. Looking at the overall final results, they were a little different to the initial finishing order as we had Sorensen handed a post-race penalty. So his initial fourth place became a seventh. But it didn't change the overall podium positions, which meant that in GT3, we had the Jetstream Motorsport AMR number 47, Aston Martin with Graham Davidson and Maxime Martin taking first place. Taking second place was the Team Parker Racing number one Bentley, driven by Rick Parfit Jr. and Ryan Ratcliffe, and the Optimum Motorsport number 75, Aston Martin, with Johnny Adam and Flick Haig in third. Over in GT4, Taking top spot on the podium was the Century Motorsport number 43 BMW with Jack Mitchell and Dean McDonald. Second place honours went to Tom and Motorsports number four car, Charlie Fagg and Michael O'Brien in the McLaren. And another McLaren in third place with the Keep for Sure number 10 car, driven by Finley Hutchinson and Daniel McKay. What I, I will say is it is nice to see the number 47 get a win. The problem. And it's a good problem to have, but the problem with having TF Sport in the championship, and it was a a, a point a problem which was made um, a bit less relevant after Optimum took the title. But the problem with having TF Sport in the championship is you automatically assume that Aston Martin's going to win. It's going to have Tom Ferrier's logo on it somewhere. Um, and it's nice to see a team that Optimum, they came in, they did very, very well. Optimum have got form in the championship. They've run Audis, they've run Janettas as well. Jetstream turned up, first year, new car, different approach to making it look good as well because it had a livery that didn't fit the accepted pattern of Aston Martin. They, they, they did everything a bit differently to, to what we'd seen before. And it's good to see them get some reward for that result. It was good to see Graham and Maxine get the win after, after a couple of times coming close, especially in their first year in British GT. 
Spa of all places to get their first win. It was definitely a good thing for them. Yeah, if, you, if you've got to take your first win at a circuit, you, you probably want it to be at Spa, don't you? I didn't actually yeah. realise there was that many there was that many fires because all, all you all you ever see on the kind of like the reports is Mark Farmer going into is it Radion at the top? Yes. Yeah, and uh, on just in like, in flames. So uh... so after Spa, the British GT Championship returned to the UK and went to Brands Hatch in Kent for the penultimate round of the championship. At the start of the race, it was basically an Aston Martin front row. And somewhat remarkably, it remained an Aston Martin front row by the time the car got to Paddock Hill. The 75 of Flick Haig in the lead, with Andrew Howard in second place. Then to make things even better for the for the Aston Martin brand, the 47 Jetstream Aston Martin of Graham Davidson nipped its way into third. Now, there was improvements further down the field in GT3. Rick Parfit Jr., uh, moved forward in the Team Parker Racing Bentley. He moved up from 8th to 6th. Unfortunately, that was kind of counterbalanced by the team car, the number 7 of Ian Loggy, dropping from his grid spot to the back of the GT3 field. The number 42 car, the Century Motorsport BMW, took GT4's lead on the first lap. The first quarter of the race was where a lot of the drama actually happened, and, and the first bit of drama fell basically local racers. Team Hard, the number 88 from just across the river in Essex. Ben Wallace went through gravel at Sheen, then got sort of booted out of the way by an oncoming GT3 car at Druids, and then ended up again in the gravel at Sheen Curve with uh, further contact with the same GT3 car, the Barwell Motorsport number 33. This time, the safety car came out because the uh, the little bump from the from the Barwell machine put the BMW into the gravel and it got stuck. Now, 36 minutes in is where the race really got really got quite quite thrilling in terms of and quite worrying because there was an absolutely monstrous accident on on the pit straight. Now, coming out of clearways, heading down the pit straight, you're looking for your pit board, you're lining yourself up for Paddock Hill. You've been going foot to the boards for, for for quite a way. Finding an accident on pit straight is a scary, scary time. This accident was the number 44 Jag Paul Vice at the wheel. Uh, with the number 50 HHC Janetta of Mike Newbold, they came together into the wall. The 50, there wasn't a lot of it left. Really, there wasn't much chance of it coming back. The marshals and the, and the recovery guys got to work. They had to rebuild the tyre wall as well. Now, the, the incident actually blocked the pit straight quite significantly. So all the cars were then diverted through the pit lane behind the safety car, which was out for six laps while they did did the repair work. So it was a very long safety car period. Now the pit stops were late because of the safety car incident and the cars coming through the pit lane. The real loser in the pit stops was Team Parker Racing, the number one Bentley. Ryan Ratcliffe had taken over from Rick Parvitt Jr., but due to success seconds, they fell to the back of the GT3 field. Their problems became greater a minute later when, having just exited the pits, Ryan Ratcliffe was trying to get past the Mercedes of Scott Malvin run by Tim Parker Racing in GT4. Put two wheels on the grass trying to get past the Mercedes and it just sucked him into the gravel at Starlings. The race, really, it became a bit of a race of attrition in, in the second half. The real scary incident of the second half was for Maxime Martin. 
number 47 Aston Martin from Jetstream was just unlucky wrong place at the wrong time car ahead of him flipped up a bit of uh, curbing stone concrete which unfortunately hit the windscreen of the Aston Martin broke the windscreen came through the windscreen shards of glass flew inside the car and, and injured Maxine but not not massively Maxine got the car back to the pits but it really wasn't safe to continue with a with a car with the windscreen in that state other incidents in the sort of 20 minutes after the pit stops there was a puncture for a keep for sure the number 10 mclaren and then fluid was seen coming from the back of the number 33 the barbell motorsport car phil Keane was driving the car and he pulled it off uh, pilgrim's drop shortly after the fluid was first seen I later found out that yet yeah, further debris had been sort of thrown up around the track and it had been blocking the radiator and it caused it to boil over and overheat there was about 15 minutes of, of relative peace after that and then coming down into the final sort of six seven minutes of the race it all started to heat up again tf sport in the, the number 11 car in the hands of nikki team got on terms with the number 99 car Beachstein, the aston martin of darren turner and a little bit of friendly rivalry and a little bit of jousting got nikki team through to take third the number 75 car was also feeling a little bit feisty and through dingle dell managed to put a move on johnny cocker in the number 69 barwell lamborghini dropped the lamborghini down to second and johnny adam went on to take the win for optimum motorsport before the end there was an incident for mike broadhurst he had a had an off at druids which put him into the tyres. But really, that was overshadowed in, in the grand scheme of things by the battle in GT4. A three-way fight for most of the final lap between the number 42, Ben Tuck-driven Century BMW, the 53 of Martin Plowman, the Nissan, and the 66 of Scott Malvin, the Mercedes. There was also, a little bit further back, the number 56 Tolman McLaren. Now, really, the battle here was the battle for the for the final steps of the podium. And it was a bit of a scorcher. Three-way drag race out of Sterling's, down to clearways and through. And in the end, it was the number 42, which managed to come out on top just ahead of the Nissan to, to complete the podium. But the thing that was really, really impressive here is that the number 56 car managed to get a fifth starting at the back of the grid. So, the podium positions in GT3. Ottoman Motorsport, the number 75 car, put set themselves up for a great Donington decider by taking victory in the penultimate race of the year. Barwell Motorsport's number 69 car came in second, which was a small consolation for the team after the retirement of the number 33, their championship contending car. And then Nicky Team and Mark Farmer pulled off third place in the number 11 TF Sport car. GT4 went to Balfe Motorsport, number 501, who had, in a Brands Hatchway, a fairly quiet race. Wasn't really a lot seen of them because there's so much going on elsewhere. The number 42, as we said, took second, ahead of Martin Plowman and Kelvin Fletcher's number 53, Ogtech Nissan. Two major incidents of this race were nowhere near as, as bad as what they could have been. Mike Newbold, very lucky to walk away as well as he did from that crash on the pitch straight. And Maxime Martin's injuries, nowhere near as bad as what they could have been from that uh, debris penetrating the windscreen. One of the big things of this race is uh, Flick Hayes' performance. She built up a lead, safety car come out, got rid of a lead, and she managed to build the lead up again because obviously they had success penalty from the previous race to deal with. 
Oh yeah, I mean her drive was 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 actually stunning. Again, I think I think uh, Nick just said then that it was a bit quiet for Graham Johnson and, and Mike Robinson in the in the in the five one bout, but. You know, we we you didn't really see much of Flick and Johnny either, really, because they had extended the lead as much as what they did. It was a champion's drive, I think, from from Flick Hague, a couple of times in the year, and then again when we get up Donington Park, when you sat there watching the race in in the media centre, and you're you're sort of assessing the way people are driving, and you get. On the Ryan Ratcliffe move, which put two wheels on the grass to get past a teammate car that wasn't even in his class. You could tell that's the move of somebody that's a bit frazzled, etc. And then you look at a serene car just doing its thing. Nothing appears to be a drama. Oh, you want to get past yet? You go, because I only need points for third. And this, that and the other. That's the drive of a true champion. And, and we were seeing that from Flick towards the end of the season, especially at Brands Hatch. So after Brands Hatch was the traditional Donington decider. Um, and really, the people that I feel for most from this race are Phil Keane and John Minshaw because they did everything right and it just wasn't to be. Um, Minshaw drove brilliantly at the start. He took the lead and he held it throughout. He built up 20 seconds in the first 25 minutes, uh, which was lost due to due to oil on the Wheatcroft straight, the safety car came out and it bumped everything back up. The good news for Minshaw here uh, is that the 69 car of Sam DeHaan was in second. And when you've got a teammate fighting for a championship and you're not, you do all you can to help. And Sam DeHaan did his bit. Now, Mark Farmer did manage to get past Sam DeHaan in the number 11 car in the run-up to the pit stops and then gave chase on John Minshaw, but the gap was 14 seconds by the time the pit stop opened. Now, further down the order, Flick Haig was doing another one of her champion's drives, and she was doing just what she had to do. She wasn't picking fights she didn't need to pick. It meant the Jetstream Aston Martin of Graham Davidson managed to get past Flick Haig, and then headed off after Sam DeHaan, and was taking second place when he came across the oil, went off on that oil, and that caused a safety car. So, a bit of bad luck going on there. Come the pit stops, because the flick handed over to Johnny Adam, who continued in the same mindset, um, wasn't going to do anything that was going to put them in jeopardy. No, no fighting battles that didn't need to be fought. He allowed Young of Berman to get past fairly easily, and didn't push too hard when he came across Ryan Ratcliffe in the number one Bentley. The 75 car of, of Johnny Adam had a, a fairly easy second hour, cruised to a fourth place, which sealed the championship quite nicely. The 33, however, had its hands full. Phil Keane and Nicky Team were going at it for the win. Now, Phil defended pretty well from, from Nicky Team, but Nicky was, was on a bit of a mission. In the end, he managed to take the place on the penultimate lap but then it lost it out on it uh, when he was found to have taken too many liberties with the Donington Park real estate. He netted a 30-second time penalty from, from his actions, which put the number 33 back into a winning position. Unfortunately, it wasn't a position that would win them the title. In GT4, 
really the big news was an incident on the first lap. It affected the guys that have been performing pretty well pretty much throughout the season, Adam Ballon and Ben Barnico. It took them out of the race completely and also delayed Tom and Motorsport's number five car, the Sicily Motorsport number 25, which was a single round entry for Fairbrother and Morgan, and the number 55 HHC Motorsport car of uh, Callum Poynton and, and, and Patrick Matheson. The Akeep for sure McLaren had a race where it, it did what it needed to do then had a problem and did what it needs to do again and then had a problem. So this was, was indicated when having lost out on the lead to the 42, Daniel McKay took his time, got back into the lead. He then built up a gap, went off on oil at Redgate Corner into the gravel, kept it going but lost positions, came back on in fourth place. He managed to get back past the Academy Motorsport Aston Martin and again past the, the Michael O'Brien-driven Tolman uh, McLaren then made his move on Ben Green to retake the lead just before the pit window opened. The second half of the race was a fairly quiet affair in GT4. This is pretty lucky given the fact that GT3 was, was giving us all we, all, all we could just to keep up with it. But issues in, in the second half for Jack Mitchell meant that he picked up a stop-and-go penalty for problems in the pit lane. He held on to eight at the line and it secured his title by one point from the teammate car which was doing all it could to take the win in glass and and sort of reverse that unfortunately for the two bends that wasn't to be so the championship was secured by but jack mitchell on his own given that he had different co-drivers during the season the big mover in the second half of the race was joe osborne he shared with david patterson and he fought through the gt4 field to an overall podium position he took the win in Pro-Am, but it wasn't enough for him to take the title. That went to the number 66 Team Parker Racing Mercedes. So the final results of the final race of the season saw the number 33 take the win, John Minshaw and Phil Keane. The number 11 car of Mark Farmer and Nicky Team held on to second despite the time penalty, which just shows how despite the fact they were battling hard, Keane and Team really were moving pretty quickly at the front of the field. Because Yelmer Berman, once he got past the Johnny Adam Aston Martin, was only able to get into third place despite that time penalty. In GT4, Daniel McKay of Finlay Hutchinson, despite their travails in the first half of the race, held out to take victory from the number four Tolman Motorsport McLaren of Michael O'Brien and Charlie Fagg. The number 56 Tolman Motorsport McLaren of Patterson and Osborne took third place. The GT4 lead for the Drivers' Championship, literally, this was, we had four cars going for it. The HAC Ginetta of Callum Poynton and Patrick Tyson. They had Tom McLaren and Michael O'Brien, Charlie Fagg, the Ben Mobile, and obviously then Jack Mitchell. In the end, they're only separated by seven and a half points between the four cars, and it was down, each lap it was changing who was winning the championship. Couldn't keep up with it. Yeah, it was it was a th- it was a thrilling race all, all, all round, and and Donington always provides good racing action. It was an absolute nightmare to keep track of it in the media centre. That's that's all I can really remember here is just something happens on track. All oh, get the spreadsheet out again and figure out who's winning. And in GT four, it was a, it was a bit of a mission. It was it was fairly simple in GT three in that if the number seventy five car was in sixth place or better, then that was all she wrote. So GT, GT4 kept us guessing pretty much to the last minute. John Minshaw and Phil Keane actually winning the last race, which the last two years before that would have got them the championship. 
obviously they made some little errors on those years. The year they win it, unfortunately, because of their season results, they weren't in the, wasn't good enough for them to clinch the championship. Yeah, you, you've got to feel for for for, for John Minshaw particularly. Uh, I mean, Phil Keane as well. In that, for, for for many many years, he's been in a position to to win it and 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 not had the chance. But for John Minshaw, you you you've really got to feel because it was his last chance. Um, obviously, he he retired from the championship at the end of the season. And obviously, after the race, uh, Nicky team being Nicky team. Decided to, even though the rules are don't do donuts, sod the rules, I'm doing donuts. Lots of pictures coming out from him down at the Melbourne hairpin, burning those tyres to bits at the end of the race. Yes, Nicky team is one to make a tyre engineer cry. But it's one of the reasons we loved having Nicky team in the championship. And it was a reason we loved having Nicky team in the championship last year as well, until he got a little bit impolitic and, and started offending money men. Um is that, one, he has a complete disdain for regulations. And, no, if I fancy doing a burnout, I'm going to do a bloody burnout, he says. Well, if he, um, if he stayed within regulations, he would have run the race. It was him getting busted for um, track limits, which cost him the penalty. But as, as we've previously discussed, track limits regulations in Europe are different to, to, to what they are over here. Nicky team is as close to a social media influencer as motorsports got. Uh, he's he, he's all about entertainment, entertainment for the fans. It's It's... It's why we love him, but it does sometimes get him in hot water. Motorsport Radio. So next up on the podcast, um, I am delighted to welcome, along with Andrew from the team, Michael O'Brien, Bath Motorsport driver on GT4. Hello. Hi, everyone. Yeah, thanks for the welcome. Um, Great to be here as well. Looking forward to chatting with you and getting stuck into the podcast. Great stuff. So kicking off then, I've been doing a little bit of a wee scout around on the interwebs, which I can entirely blag because everybody knows that I'm the relative newbie and don't have all the background knowledge that everyone else does, but it means I get to research things. (laughs) (laughs) So from my kind of looking around, I can see that racing does run in your family. Was it always something that's on your radar that you wanted to do, or was there ever any thought to you anything different? Is my yeah. first question. Yeah. So, like you say, obviously it has to give everyone a bit of background. Like you say, so my dad basically started out in racing from from a young age. His parents were both school teachers, but it was something that he always wanted to do. So, sort of set out to try and gain sponsorship and buy his own race cars and go racing that way, which he did all the way up until the late 80s when he raced in British touring cars. That was the last sort of big thing, the big series he did when he drove a Holden in British touring cars. And he did that. And something that a lot of people don't actually know is that my godfather, David Coulthard, also raced for McLaren like I do now in Formula One and obviously won 13 Grand Prix. So I've always been around it and I've always had people in my life that have been racing at a high level. But it wasn't really until... 2017 which was my first full season of racing it wasn't really until a couple of years before then I really started to get the bug and actually want to compete myself like I'd always been to races I'd always watched it on tv I've always played the games growing up but until yeah until a couple of years ago it wasn't really something that I ever wanted to do and like a switch one day I just 
woke up and, and said to my dad, you know what, I'd actually really like to give this a go now. So um, that's how it went, really. You'd said that you move and your decision to move into racing was something that just clicked one day. What was the plan before that? Had you got anything in particular that you were thinking about doing? Or basically, what if you hadn't gone down the racing route? Yeah, I think that's that's a really good question and uh, something that is is quite difficult to answer because I really, I can't really remember back to what I would have liked to have done at the time. I, When I was in my sort of teenage years, I enjoyed my mountain bike racing and I did that quite successfully, but I sort of knew from the outset that although I enjoyed and I had some success at more of a club level that it dawned on me quite quickly that I wasn't ever going to be good enough to do it as a job or full time. So sort of with that, I moved into, uh, I had a, sort of a couple of no- normal jobs uh, doing various things and then moved in to do some work with our family business, which is based around motorsport because you sort of go back to what you love and what you've always known. And although I wasn't mm. driving, I still really loved the sport. So I went in to do that. And enjoyed that a lot, to be honest. So even if I hadn't have done racing, uh, I would have quite liked the progression in the business and to have maybe taken that over one day. And that's, I think, actually, that that change into to going into the racing world full time, if you like, every day, sort of being around race cars or race products, um, is probably what flicked that switch, luckily, for me. So doing that job, yeah, probably actually took me to where I am today in the sense that it lit the fire Mm. yeah I mean looking at your history in terms of kind of what you did prior to being taken on to the driver development program with McLaren and moving into British GT after that you did start out a little bit differently to to some I can see there's some classic car racing on there and you also participated in the Sangyong pickup challenge which sounds a lot of fun. Um, I can't see there being too many transferable skills from that necessarily, but how did you find the classic car racing as preparation for what was to come after? I think the the classic car racing with the historics was actually really good. Like, okay, the cars weren't relevant to what I'm racing now, but the racing itself was just as competitive. Okay, there probably wasn't honestly the strength in depth like there is in Bridge GT with how many people can potentially win a race, but at the front, you still had a number of good drivers like Cameron Jackson, who would always give you a good run for the money. And the cars, the racing was so close. The cars, obviously, the way they're designed, there was lots of slipstreaming. The cross-ply tyres didn't have much grip. So once you're in front, you could never really get away. And that was great practice to learn racecraft, to learn slipstreaming, to learn overtaking. So really, that although the car was very different to what I'm driving now. The actual core skills that I learned in the historics was really transferred over to the Bridge GT. And same for the pickup truck thing, really. Like, obviously, that was a really good year for me. And in that series, I, very new to racing, didn't really know much about the other drivers around me, um, sort of naively. But obviously, racing James Gornall for, for a lot of the success during that series, who's now gone on into touring cars. It was a similar thing to the Formula Ford. The racing was really good. Even though they were quite slow, the pickups, they were still quite challenging to drive. So I certainly learned a lot of core skills from both those championships, even Mm. though the relevance of the the car doesn't really carry over. 
Brilliant. And we've, we've touched briefly on the fact that you did move into the McLaren Driver Development Programme and you were one of the first intake into that. Do you want to tell me a little bit more as to how that came about, what the programme involved for you and how you found that as an experience? Yeah, absolutely. So obviously, firstly, uh, the Driver Development Programme that they run at McLaren was just absolutely life-changing for me from gaining a, a place through the selection process to having the success we had with my teammate Charlie Fagg in the first season together. During 2017, going back a year, in my first year of racing, I was obviously enjoying quite a bit of success that year, which sort of surprised me, surprised my dad as well. And then obviously we were already sort of thinking about what the next step might be and where that would come from, obviously with him knowing the challenges of, of modern motorsport as well. And when when I got the chance to have a try in the McLaren, try the car, test my pace and go through the selection process. I obviously sort of wanted to take it with both hands, which obviously I did, or by the looks of it, I did. And that was a process of driving the car. That was a a new tyre run. That was a race run. That was also evaluating your fitness levels. It was also doing media interviews. So there was a, it was quite a daunting process at the time because I hadn't really had that much experience. Um, And you're presented with this amazing brand and manufacturer sort of giving you an opportunity to get into professional racing. So, yeah, I just tried my best, stuck to my guns and and just wanted to be myself. And obviously it it worked out. So out of that, you then moved on to your first season in British GT with Tolman, which even as a newbie, I see was a massive success with the top three finish overall in GT4, which is absolutely outstanding. What were the highlights um, of the season for you? And also what were the biggest lessons you learned from that? So that, that first year really was incredible, really. Um, sort of like the year before, we, we surprised ourselves, I think. So, um, I mean, coming into that year as well with Lewis, Charlie and Jordan on the team, I think I was the only person that hadn't raced a GT car before the start of that season. But the professionalism of the team, the professionalism of my teammate, Charlie, and I had a driver coach as well, Charlie Hollings. Everything just clicked. And I think um, it was the sort of perfect recipe for success. And in terms of highlights, I mean, there's so many good moments that year. I mean, from our first race at Alton Park, where I qualified the car on the front row and we finished second. Round two at Rockingham, where we got our first pole position. Um, and I think on average, we were on pole by by over two seconds on the average times. And then Spa was another highlight for me. I was on pole in my class and led every single lap of the race, my first race at Spa. And then coming obviously so close to the championship, two points of winning the championship as well. So, so many highlights from that first year. And um, mm. I learned a huge amount along the way as well. What would you say the biggest lesson was for you? I think really just for doing things that I hadn't done before. So being, it sounds sort of basic, but being told about the pit stops and doing things like that, driver changes, they, all these sort of things were new to me. So outside of learning how professional the team was and how professional McLaren are, basic things like pit stops, driver changes, um, doing an hour stint in a race car. There's sort of numerous things that I learned, but really the basics of GT racing was the sort of the foundation that I took away from that first year that mm. obviously you work on, you improve all the time, but they, they were the real new things for me. Cool. So after that season, you moved across from Tolman to Balfe Motorsport. 
and into your pairing with Graham Johnson. So a new team, but staying with the same car. And you had some great moments through that season as well, finishing second in the Pro-Am GT4 class. How are you feeling about the upcoming season and what are your thoughts on the amended calendar that's now out? Yeah, I think um, firstly about the calendar, I obviously think British GT are doing an amazing job to first get the dates um, yep. and put, put a calendar in place. I mean, hats off to them really to get still get the same amount of race time in from starting when they are to what they would have done anyway. Yeah. I think they've done a great job to secure the track time for all the competitors. And personally, I'm, I'm feeling really good. We had an amazing season together last year where we finished second in the in the championship, like you said. And hopefully, I mean, we, we both share the same goal along with the team that we could go one better this year. We've prepared really well over the winter. Um, both of us have put the work in, whether that's been training on the simulators together, fitness in the gym, working on the areas that we, we were weak in last year. So, yeah, I feel feel really good ahead of the season, just sort of itching like everyone else to get going now. And how has the pandemic affected your training? I know you've just said that you've obviously been in the simulators and working on these things. Lockdown and everything like that has obviously made a huge impact across every aspect of everything. What have you done to kind of deal with that? Um, to be honest, I, I, it sounds weird, but not that much has changed. Obviously, the the driving element has changed and has completely stopped. Um but the sim side of things, as as I'm sure you would have seen, has sort of in, increased. So in regards to that, I've been taking part for McLaren in the SRO eSports series, which has taken up an awful lot of time practicing because hmm. if you're not doing four hours a day practicing, someone else is. So that's been really good to sort of keep stimulated and keep that competitive element of driving. And same with the fitness as well. I started working with a new fitness trainer during the winter with the one-to-one stuff and even though we obviously can't train together at the moment he's been giving me remote programs um training sessions every week i've been going out on the bike so not too much has really changed it just feels like the off season's been eight months now instead instead of starting to race again but the actual preparation itself has just been sort of more drawn out but hasn't really changed much Looking ahead into next season, well, there's a lot of McLarens in GT4. Do you think that gives you an experience advantage, having already had a lot of time in the car compared with some of the other drivers? Yeah, I I do. And there's also a lot of drivers that are more experienced than me in GT racing. I mean, I feel in McLaren and in the GT4 car, I feel extremely comfortable. And I like to think every time I I go out in the car, I can maximise what we've got. And with a teammate like Graham who's been absolutely exceptional in British GT. He's obviously won the championship. I know we've got a great chance every time we we enter a race, we go to a circuit. I know we're always going to be in contention. But like you say, this year, I mean, McLarens are are everywhere in GT4. I mean, even in the Balfe team, we've got an amazingly strong lineup of Mia Fluitt and Ewan Hankey, who both have really incredible success in GT racing in their own fields with Mia winning two championships in the pure McLaren series and Ewan's obviously raced in the world endurance championship among other things. So even in the garage, we've got extreme competition and then there's other teams that are preparing and taking it just as seriously as we are. So yes, we feel confident, but we also can't underestimate the challenge that we're going to have from other people. 
So in this next segment, we've got some questions that have come in via the British GT fans group, which Andrew is going to take care of. So over to you, Andrew. I'm raring to go. First questions from um, somebody you should know, uh, Mr. Sean Balfe. Thinking mm. you know, don't you, Mikey? It <laughs> rings a bell. Yeah, yeah, I think he's done something at Cadwell or something in the past. But yeah, yeah. he's he's put. How fast do you round Cadwell? Um, I don't know exactly. I'm certainly faster than Sean round Cadwell. Um, is, that, is that historic cars? I'm guessing. Yeah, historic, modern. You know, just everywhere. Just everywhere, every corner at Cadwell. I'll just yeah. text him that now. Tell him you said that. Yeah, I love that. Um, yeah, I couldn't quantify it, but certainly cert- faster than him and potentially probably the fastest person ever. But we'll obviously see when the track reopens. Um, yeah, that, that'll be it. Be a good race. Get the, get the 720 versus you in the, in the um, 570. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm so confident that I think I'd probably still be ahead of him in the GT4 round Cadwell just because I know it so well. <laughs> Um, but apparently he has had some success there as well in the past. He sort of mentions it from time to time about a lap record or something. But, you know, I think 80 years ago it was easier to achieve. So, we'll, um, yeah, we'll have to have a, a sort of a, a face-off round there soon. Sounds, sounds like a plan. <laughs> Second question we got is from Bill Devonish. Oh, uh, yeah. Have you ever lost a championship due to something silly like a puncher in the final round? <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, I, I know Bill very well, and uh, he's a good friend of mine. And, um, yes, he's referring back to in 2017 when I was doing the historic Formula Forge series, as well as the, the pickup trucks. I was leading the championship coming into the last race by 24 points, and obviously the maximum you can get is 25 so coming to the last race, all I needed to do was score one point and the person that was in second in the championship not win the race. So anyway, I was in a good position in the lead battle uh, during this final race, quite happy. And then with a couple of laps to go, my tyre started going down and um, I just sort of didn't really know what was happening. So I was dropping back, dropping back as the pressure was, was obviously going from the wheel. And then eventually I had to retire so it wasn't all over because potentially I still could retire and win if the guy that I needed to beat didn't win the race. And then, yeah, so I retired, um, watched sort of the last few laps from the sidelines, and then the person that needed to beat me got passed on the final corner of the final lap to win the race and then therefore went on to win the championship, and I, I lost it by one point. He did a Hamilton on you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, that's it. I got an is that Glock uh, that that happened to me. So um, yes, that that's a sort of background story of what happened during 2017. That's that's Absolutely. yeah, that sucks. <laughs> yeah, that, it was pretty pretty bad actually. Um, but obviously, then the the by that point, I sort of had wind of the McLaren opportunity for next year. So other uh, sort of it worked decided, out all right in the end. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Next question we have is from Chris Humphreys, a fellow marshal um, that I got to know quite well. Is 2020's plan to be super clean, fighting for podiums each round, banking the points for the championship? Yeah, thanks, Chris. Yeah, great question. Yeah, absolutely that. I mean, that's, that's always our intention. And obviously, with British GT being so competitive, it's sort of harder to execute. But yeah, absolutely, the, the championship is the, the top priority and to have 
all the races just to go smoothly and cleanly is an absolute priority for us to, to score points at every race. Is there a set more important than winning races? I'd, I'd rather win the championship with a single win or no wins rather than score four wins and still not win the series. So, yeah, we need to be clinical. The Pro-Am Championship is going to be really competitive this year, uh, especially with the teammates that we've got in Balfe. So, um, yeah, that, that's absolutely the plan and, and hopefully we can execute it quite well. Next question is from another marshal. We seem to get rounds a lot. Emily Pinchy Chatters. She asks, can you remember your favourite marshal from Snetterton who helped you out in January? And would you want to be a marshal for a day? Yeah, well, to answer the first part of your question, Emily, it might just be you. Yeah, I obviously can remember that in January at Snetterton. It was during a, a private McLaren event, actually, where we, we hold an event for our, for our customers to gain their race licenses. So they're doing various races in minis around the certain configurations at Snetterton to, to gain license points to get the license to, to allow them to race in the pure mclaren gt series so yes i remember the the sort of couple of days very well and it was obviously great to spend time with you as well i was the official safety car driver for the event so very important job i was driving the the mclaren safety car during the event um and emily was obviously alongside me as the marshal sort of guiding me through the process which actually i enjoyed a lot it was it was really good uh, a great experience and Yes, I don't know how confident I'd be at marshalling. I sort of get nervous thinking about it because it feels like a lot of responsibility. But I have a huge amount of respect for what you do because it sort of, yeah, daunts me thinking about it and uh, you've got lots of decisions to make quickly. So, yes, I would like to join you if you think I'm capable and, Andrew, you can probably contribute as well. But, uh, yeah, maybe one day we'll, um, I'll have to do it with you at Snetterson. Yeah, for sure. It's something that I always thought all drivers should take part in, at least one day, to see it from our point of view. Yeah. Like, especially with the flagging or a bit of incident dealing with, and you see, then you see how we're trying to convey to you what we're, what we're seeing and how things go. I think it'd be a nice way to know, for the drivers to know what we're doing, and then, obviously, then we can get the knowledge from you as well. I think it'd be nice if actually that could actually perhaps happen once the virus disappears. Perhaps that might yeah. be something we can perhaps do eventually in the future for, for every driver. Yeah, absolutely, Andrew. I, I I really completely agree. Obviously, when you when you're looking for signatures, if you're if you're upgrading your licenses, obviously one of the options is to do a day's marshalling, which I think really is like you said, just as important. And obviously, I'm sort of guilty of not having done it, but it's something that I would like to experience as you're gaining knowledge, gaining experience of the whole race event. So. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely on my radar, and it would sort of be really nice to see it from another perspective. We'll sort that out one day. You can come and post from me. Yeah, and I'll, I'll I'll just tell Graham he's got a new teammate for the day. Oh, well, that works. I'll, I'll <laughs> go with that. Yeah. Our next question is from Adam. Adam, I believe you know is another name there, Mike. Um, yeah. Have you considered other forms of motorsport, something completely different, like jet ski racing? Yeah. Hi, Adam. Um, Adam Wilcox, this is. Yes, I have. Um, but uh, Adam knows he works with me on the McLaren uh, Pure events. So he's part of the McLaren Drive team. And in December, we were lucky enough to be in Miami, Florida, for one of the McLaren, private McLaren events. 
And during some of the uh, downtime we had, we hired some jet skis and went out onto the water. And I can honestly say I've never been so bad at something in my life as jet ski riding, driving. I, I absolutely hang, hang Yeah. And, and he was really good. So no, I wouldn't race a jet ski, but I'm really into my motorbikes. So yes, I'd, I'd love to, I wouldn't be good enough, but I'd love to try some other sorts of racing, whether that's like motorbike racing on circuits or whether that's motocross. I'm, I'm really into that as well as mountain biking. So yeah, something two-wheeled I'd certainly like to try, but I'm definitely going to stay away from water sports for now. <laughs> Sounds like a good idea. <laughs> yeah, it, it is, especially if you saw it. I hope there's video evidence if you'd seen it, Adam. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, Adam, there probably is, so I'm sure he'll put some on the Bridge GT fans sort of comment or something. We'll make sure we'll prove that one when it comes through. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, next question is uh, uh, I, I recognise the name and I recognise his picture from Facebook Richard Tricky Dunford we all know where he, we know where he works he has put what's it like working for Balf yeah uh, I know Tricky very well and yeah and being part of the Balf team's amazing basically to put it bluntly it's an amazing team it's run sort of perfectly by David and Sean and to be honest I, I just love being a part of it the, the only bad thing is the guys doing the tyres are just an absolute nightmare um, without naming names. You know who you are. It's, uh, yeah, everything's perfect apart from the guys that do the tyres. Tricky. So, yeah, it's great. Uh, <laughs> but no, on a serious <laughs> note, it's uh, it really is am amazing to be part of that team. I, f I feel really privileged because it's a family-run team. All the values that they have is exactly what I stand for and... Uh, Everything's so professional. It's so well maintained, and yeah, it's a it's a real privilege to be part of that team. Yeah, I got to meet Sean first time last year, and he's been nothing but great to us and the group. He funded the Marshall badges we got to put onto our orange suits. Yeah, he messaged me one day just saying how much um, I saw you want to do his badges. How much? I gave him a price. He goes, "Yeah, I'll sort it out." And all we got, all our British GT fans marshals all got badges paid for by Sean which is brilliant of him to do and say so he lets us have put our stickers on all over your cars and he's uh, he's been super for this thing and he he's a nice nice bloke and I think the whole team have embraced us as well which is nice and they seem to be a really friendly bunch of people which is really really good to see yeah absolutely and and just to sort of touch on that when you've got a leader like Sean who's obviously extremely generous like that um, and also understanding of any concerns or problems you have. That's, that's I think, one of the reasons why they've got such an amazing team. They've got a great group of people all with the same attitude and same goals. And it's, uh, yeah, it's a recipe for success, really. And our final question is from Joshua Gilding. And he has asked, the McLarens are becoming more and more popular in British GT, especially GT4 and actually GT3. What's it like racing one of those machines? Thanks for the, the question. Um, yeah, I mean, firstly, obviously, I think the success of the car over the last couple of seasons has sort of done the talking, really. It's, it's an amazing car to drive. Every time you get in a McLaren, it feels special. But speaking about the GT4 car, first of all, it's just an incredibly user-friendly car. And I think that's one of the reasons why the bronze or am drivers really like the mclaren um you can get in you can feel comfortable straight away and the car gives you great feedback on what it's going to do underneath you so 
I think that's one of the big hits for the car. I think that's one of the reasons why it's so popular and it's had the amount of success it's had. And with the GT3, I mean, what a great advert sort of Balf had last year with the car doing so well. Um, obviously won the final race of the season pretty convincingly. Um, and it's, again, I, I've done a lot of testing over the winter in the car um, and hopefully we'll be racing one this season in something else as well. Um, and it's, it's an amazing bit of kit very similar to the GT4 car in the sense that I think McLaren have done an amazing job in making a car that's user-friendly. You can jump in and you feel at home straight away and uh, it's confidence-inspiring. And I think that's one of the reasons why a number of teams have switched to the car and they're all enjoying success really straight out the box with it. And uh, yeah, it's amazing to drive, whether it's GT4 or GT3, it still feels either car feels just as special and just as important to me. So it's a real privilege and, uh, yeah, you, you, you never get bored of it. It's, uh, I know that sounds really sort of stereotypical, but it's something that a pinch yourself moment every time you get in really. I always said, if I actually want some nice big mo- amount of money on the lottery, I'd, um, mm. my four car team would might be all McLaren's. Yeah. I, I, I honestly don't blame you even without my McLaren cap on. Obviously I haven't, sampled anything else but uh i'd have absolutely no reason to go anywhere else i mean i the, obviously the i suppose that really that the success i've had almost with the sort of the the success the last two years speaks for itself as well like without having any gt experience the success in the mclarens the last two seasons is sort of again a testament to how good the car is straight out the box really that concludes all our questions from the British GT fans page. Uh, thank you to everyone who submitted a question. Hopefully, uh, Michael's done a great job of answering for you. And we'll move on to our next part. So in the last segment of our interview, we have a little bit of a new concept, which we are going to use with everyone that comes on the show. We've got five kind of quick fire questions that we're going to ask everyone. First two are in tandem with each other. Favourite car and worst car. Oh, okay. That's a really good question. Um, it's going to be quick fire, but I'm probably going to spend quite a lot of time thinking. You can that. take as long yeah. as you like to answer. <laughs> um, can Can I give you my favourite modern car and my favourite historic car? Absolutely. Um, so, favourite modern car um, would definitely be the McLaren Speedtail, the new three seat McLaren Speedtail. That would be an absolute dream for me. I just love the concept and love the car. Favourite historic car would be the Lotus 25 single-seater, the car that won uh, Jim Clark the World Championship in 1963. That's uh, Again, that would be an absolute dream car for me. Um, so, yeah, that, that they would be my two favourite cars, modern and historic. And then my worst car, uh, uh, anything apart from those two, really. Um <laughs> If it's not a McLaren or a Lotus 25, I mean, I'm not really that bothered, but what would be my worst car? Um, not your daily driver. So, something like a smart car. Like a, I, I really, I'm sorry if you've got a smart car, by the way. I really don't like things like that. So probably like a, a smart car or something along those lines. Next two again in tandem. What is your favourite track and your worst track? Okay, uh, favourite track uh, is Cadwell Park. Not even going back to earlier, I love that circuit, uh, the character that it's got. Amazing circuit, so that would be my favourite track. Um, And the worst track, um, 
trying to think for the for the circuits that I've driven on. The worst track that I've probably done, it, it, in terms of results, this would be, um, is is Thruxton. And I say that because I never really had much luck there in the Formula Ford stuff that I did, but I still enjoy the circuit. So that would be a worse track in terms of experience. But to be honest, I've, I enjoy really all the circuits that I've done. I know, I know that's a bit vague, but every track's good in a different way. So, and, I, and I've enjoyed them all. Like, I don't have mm. that many bad experiences is there a track that would absolutely intimidate you if someone turned, you know, gave you a call and said, by the way, tomorrow you're going here? Uh, yeah, I think the, the full Norse life would definitely do that for me because um, I've ne- never driven there. And if I was going tomorrow, I'd just not have a clue where I was going. So, yeah, that would definitely be very intimidating. Definitely. And the last question we've got, um, is what would be your ultimate three-car garage? Um, okay, so uh, road and race cars, uh, the McLaren Speedtail, uh, the Lotus 25. Uh, does that count, though, with it being a race car? I don't know. I think it we'll let it in. wherever you want. Yeah, <laughs> okay. there's, there's, yeah. there's no rules on this. Okay. Um, yeah, so I'd have uh, McLaren Speedtail for the road, I'd have the Jim Clark championship winning Lotus 25 and I'd also have a 1994 Ford Escort Cosworth because that's the year I was born and for the last couple of years I've always had in my head that I want one. Uh, I've loved them ever since I can remember Um, and yeah, that would be a perfect addition to the garage for me. Nice. Making me feel old now, thanks. Yeah, well... You, you are. What can I say? Shut up, you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm making no comment because I'm a lady. <laughs> I, can go off the, I can go off these drivers as well. You know that. <laughs> Why is that guy black flagging me every lap? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the only thing that's left for us to say is thank you very much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure to have a chat with you and looking forward to hopefully chatting with you at a circuit in the near future yeah thank you both so much it's been an absolute pleasure from my side as well and hopefully it'll be interesting for the the guys that follow british gt and british gt fans so yeah thank you both very much i've really enjoyed it so that's all from us for this bumper episode of the british gt fan show stay tuned for the second part of our 2018 british gt full season review more news and lots more until then stay safe and thanks for listening Thanks for listening to the British GT Fan Show. Remember, the show is for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, redistributed, reproduced or used in any form without permission. For more information or to get in touch, please visit www.bgtfshow.co.uk. Thanks for listening.